So many things we could talk about. I'm trying to give you a perspective this time on uh, our relationship to the world. I remember a few years ago, I, I got a call, interestingly enough, from the White House in Washington. George Bush was the president at the time, prior to President Obama, and uh, his White House staff called me and uh, they, they said, would you be willing to come to Washington for a special meeting that we want to have? And I said, sure. Uh, nobody had ever invited me to the White House before. I wasn't sure what was up, but uh, I said, yeah. And I said, well, what, what are you all talking about? What, what's going on? And they said, well, there are a core of us in the White House that work for the president, that make up his staff, that are believers. And um, we want to know what our attitude as believers needs to be toward the systems and the people that we oppose. We fight battles here against people who are pro-homosexual, pro-abortion, pro-euthanasia, putting people down like a lame horse, people who uh, are against marriage, who are for open immorality. We fight this battle all the time, and we can see that it's a dangerous thing as Christians. So I went back to Washington, and, and I had a really great opportunity to talk to them about the world and to remind them, and this is what I want to say to you tonight, that the world that we hate, the complex of ideas that we hate, is still embodied in people that we must love. And I said to them, and I actually distributed uh, among them a message that I gave on the deadly dangers of moralism, you cannot turn the mission field into the enemy. You may be their enemy, and you are as a Christian. They are not your enemy. This is challenging. This is a funny way to fight a war. You've got an enemy that hates you, and you're supposed to love them. This morning we talked about the love that God hates, and that is loving the world. Tonight we want to talk about the haters that God loves, the people who hate Him, who hate Christ, who hate the church to one degree or another, who hate the gospel, who hate the truth. And that is certainly the system embodied in the people in our time and place. They hate the, the idea of the Bible being in anything, in anything public, any school, any business, any political body, any legal body, anywhere. Keep the Bible out. Keep the gospel out. Marginalize Christians. They hate us. But they are the haters that God loves, and they're the haters that we love if we're like God. So here we are. This is, our, this is our balancing act. This is our dilemma. We hate the system. We hate the world because of what it is, who we are, what it does, and where it's headed, as we saw this morning. But we have to love the people who embody that. That's a challenge. Easy to hate people. Easy to justify that hate. There's a whole generation of people my age 
who hate the Democrats, just all of them, because they're messing with America. They've introduced all these horrible, iniquitous things like abortion and homosexuality and now same-sex marriage, and, and they're the object of an awful lot of hate by an awful lot of folks think they're righteous, think they're noble, not about hating the iniquity, the sin. We hate the system. But, but at the same time, we have to love the people it's embodied in. That's really a challenge. We have a good model, though, to follow. Open your Bible to Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5, and verse 43. And I'm going to read down to verse 48, Matthew 5, 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the pagans do the same? Therefore, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Really? fascinating portion of Scripture. The Old Testament law, Ten Commandments, and the, the, really the whole moral law of the Old Testament can be summed up in two commands. What are they? Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. The, the whole law is either about your attitude toward God or your attitude toward people. That sums it up. Those are the beings that we interact with. We, we don't have an interaction with demons. We're not called uh, to cultivate any kind of attitude toward demons. We don't, uh, we don't evangelize demons because they're, be, they're beyond and outside the, the realm of salvation. But we have relationship with God and we have relationship with people. And the sum of the law is we love God and we love our neighbor. That's the sum of the whole of the law of God. Now, that, that is what the, uh, the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms. Even the Ten Commandments relate, the first half relates to how we love God and the second half to how we love our neighbor. As we look at this passage that I just read to you, I want you to understand what Jesus is teaching here against the background of what had developed in Judaism. First of all, Jesus talks about the tradition of these religious Jews. Listen to this. You have heard that it was said. Now, that little formula appears over and over and over in this Sermon on the Mount. You find it in verse, well, you find it in this verse, but earlier in the chapter, it's at least five or six times, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said. What's it referring to? Not Scripture, but the rabbinical tradition what their rabbis and teachers taught. And every time it says, you have heard it said, it is, up until this one, it is followed by, but I say. But I say. This is what you've been taught, but I say this. 
This is what you've been taught, verse 44, but I say to you. Jesus is correcting bad theology, traditional morality. And what was the teaching of the rabbis? You shall love your neighbor. Where'd they get that? Leviticus chapter 19. You might want to look at it just so you can see it for yourself. Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. This is the Old Testament law. Listen to what it says. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You can certainly reprove him when he does wrong, but you can't hate him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I'm telling you this, and I have all authority. I am the Lord. I'm telling you, love your neighbor. Now notice back at verse 43 in Matthew 5. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Something is left out and something is added. What's left out? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's left out. What's added? And hate your enemy. This was the corruption of God's law. They left out as yourself. Conveniently, they certainly didn't want to give the level of devotion to anybody else that they would give to themselves. Once in a while, you hear a preacher say, we're supposed to love God, love our neighbors, and love ourselves. That's not a command to love yourself. That's a command to love neighbors the way you naturally love yourself. Whose teeth do you brush? Whose hair do you comb? Who do you dress? Who do you make look good, sound good? Who do you care about? Who do you make sure has needs met? First, you. You don't have to be taught to do that. You don't have to be commanded to do that. That's natural. But the same level of attention you give to your own life and your needs and your desires, that is to be the level that you care for somebody else. Your love for yourself is constant, 24-7. Your love for yourself is indulgent. Your love for yourself is fervent. It is habitual. Your love for yourself pursues what is best for you. It looks for satisfaction, happiness, welfare, comfort, entertainment, interest, pleasure, fulfillment, protection, everything. Well, that's how you are to love someone else, with the same concern for all that you naturally are concerned about for yourself. Well, they conveniently left that out. So here we're looking at the tradition of the Jews with regard to this instruction. And oh, by the way, they redefined neighbor. Who is my neighbor becomes a big question among the rabbis. And a lawyer comes to Jesus one day and says, 
All right, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Well, family, close friends, not even all Jews. There were outcast Jews, tax collectors who had bought tax franchises from Rome and sold their souls to extort money out of the Jewish people for a pagan occupying power. They were hated and thrown out of the synagogue. Sick people, disabled people, lame people, because they viewed that as a curse from God, and if God was cursing them, certainly they should curse them. So neighbor just got narrower and narrower. It wasn't certainly everybody. It wasn't even all the Jews. It was only some of the Jews, and they squeezed neighbor down to the people that fit into their world, their self-righteous world. So, love your neighbor, but your neighbor can be defined by anybody that you are comfortable with, and uh, you don't really want to bring up the part about loving them the way you love yourself. That's really asking too much. And then they added, and hate your enemy. Why did they come up with that? Anyone not your BFF, you know, anybody not on your Facebook page, was really legitimate to hate. If he's not your neighbor, you don't have to love him. So the loveless hearts of the Jews, the loveless hearts, by the way, of any sinful person, is going to be selective, and they loved who they wanted to love and hated who they wanted to hate. In the 19th chapter of Leviticus, again, later on, verse 34, the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Not just family, not just friends, some alien, somebody from nowhere, some stranger, you are to love him and love him the way you love yourself with the same attention, the same care, same concern. Now, they weren't going to do that. So they took out the, for yourself, as yourself, they squeezed neighbor down to only the preferred group of people, and then they added that it's even just to hate certain people. After all, if they're tax collectors, they're alienated from God for sure because they've identified with the pagan nation. If they're sick or disabled or wounded, they're cursed by God. We don't have to love them. So from the posture of their pride and self-righteousness, they saw love your neighbor as a license to hate. Let me tell you what some of the rabbis said. Listen to this. Quoting, love all that God has chosen and hate all the others. Really? Here's another quote. Love all the sons of light and hate all the sons of darkness. And the Levites who worked alongside the priests, the Levites were instructed with these words. The Levites curse all the sons of Satan. So the Judaism of Jesus' day was just loaded with hatred. They loved the world system, the satanic world system in the form of Judaism. They loved the world system and they hated the world's people. Backwards. We hate the world system. 
We love the world's people. That's what Scripture demands. That's what God requires. And there's no equivocation on that. You say, well, wait a minute. That's fine. Um, But what about the Old Testament accounts of judgment? What about drowning the whole human race? What about God telling Israel to to act as his executioner and exterminate the Canaanites? The Ammonites, the Moabites, the Midianites, Deuteronomy 23. What about David praying imprecatory psalms, that is, praying down judgment from heaven on the heads of sinners? Listen, the only nation in the history of the world that God has ever used for a holy war as his as instrument of execution was the nation Israel in the Old Testament. God is the judge, and God sometimes uses natural forces in a supernatural way, such as the flood, as an act of judgment. Periodically, that happens even in the world today on a smaller scale. There was one time in history, one moment in history, one brief era in history, when God actually used a nation, the nation of Israel, as His judgment instrument on wretched, cancerous nations. Maybe it would help you to know that when the Canaanites built a building, they put a living baby in a jar in the foundation as a sacrifice to their gods. That's how corrupt they were. And Israel was God's instrument of judgment in that time. The wars of Israel against the Canaanites were the only holy wars in history. So that in the Old Testament you do see that, but that is unique to God's Old Testament purpose of establishing Israel in the land and bringing judgment which He has every right to bring on a godless and idolatrous people. Never, never did God tell Israel to hate those people. In fact, the whole purpose for calling out Israel was to become a witness nation. The issue is judicial, not personal. God didn't tell His people any time in history, go wherever you want and if you find a pagan, kill the pagan. No. There was that very isolated time when God used Israel as a judgment nation long, long ago. But even then, there was no place for personal vengeance. There was only love to a neighbor, to a stranger, to an alien, to anybody and everybody. And how broad was that love? Love as you love yourself. In fact, in Exodus, go back for a minute to Exodus 23. I I just am thinking this might help you a little bit with this. Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering around, you shall surely return it to him. 
If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Wow. Loving your neighbor comes all the way down to rescuing his animals and the burden on the back of a donkey. You would do that for your own animal. In Proverbs 25, verse 21 says, If your enemy's hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. It's always been personal love toward God's enemies who are your enemies. Personal love. Not hatred. So that's kind of the background of this passage. Jesus says, you've messed up the Old Testament. The Old Testament always taught love toward an enemy, but you have justified your hate. Now, let me correct all of this. Look at verse 44. But I say to you, now I'm going to tell you the truth. He makes three points really here. Just the first one, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Pretty easy to understand, isn't it? Love your enemies. Love them the same way you love yourself. Your enemy is also your neighbor. Your enemy is also your neighbor. An illustration of this that I think is unforgettable, and I know you know it well, go over to Luke 10. The lawyer, verse 25, comes to Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? He says, um, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your mind. And this lawyer, this scribe, understood, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you, you've answered correctly, so go do that, and you'll live. <laughs> go love God perfectly and your neighbor perfectly, and you can earn salvation. Of course, it's impossible. And wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, why is he asking that? Because I just told you the whole system had squeezed neighbor down so narrowly to justify their hatred for anybody that they chose to hate. So Jesus said, let me tell you a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. Here's, here, here's this guy lying on the road, mangled, and a, a priest is going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Whew. What anything to do with him? Comes a Levite who worked with the priest. He comes and sees him, oof, don't want anything to do with him. He's a cursed man, oof, right? I mean, this happened to him because he's cursed, and he's cursed because he's sinful. God hates him. I hate him. I'm not helping him. But a Samaritan, whoa, a Samaritan? Samaritans and Jews hated each other. A Samaritan's on a journey, came on him. When he saw him, he felt compassion, came to him. This is a Jew and this is a Samaritan who's hated by the Jews. He comes, he binds up his wounds, 
He pours oil and wine on them. He put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Whoa. Full coverage. Took care of everything. Verse 36, Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Jesus said, go do the same. What does it mean to love your neighbor? To show mercy to an enemy, to somebody that is outside your group, outside your circle, who's despised and hated, somebody who even comes against you. Luke 6, Jesus put it this way, do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Seeking the highest good of your neighbor means not only your friends, not only the people you like to be with, but your enemies. How can you find the path to loving your enemy as you love yourself? How can you find the the door? How, How can you cross the road and find a way to bind up the wounds of an enemy? Pour wine and oil. Put them in an inn. Pay every bill. How can you find the path to loving your enemies? We hate the system. We love the people embodied in the system. Love your enemies. Agapate, constantly be loving your enemies. Secondly, he says this, pray for your persecutors. Pray for your persecutors. That's exactly the way verse 44 ends. Pray for those who persecute you. Who gave us an example of that? What did Jesus say when he's on the cross? Father, what? Forgive. That's your prayer. That's your prayer. What did Stephen pray in Acts 7 when they were crushing him with stones, stoning him to death? What did he say? Don't put this sin against their account, God. That's the kind of prayer we're talking about. A prayer for God to forgive them. So what, in a sense, you're praying for the salvation of your persecutors. I tell you, it's going to get worse in America. Maybe tough in your, some of you may come from non-Christian homes where you're persecuted. Uh, some of you come from environments, school environments where you're persecuted because you're a faithful Christian. The system hates you, resents you. And as you grow up and out of your home, you're going to feel this more and more. Politically, it's coming down. As the culture continues to become more and more grossly evil and immoral, I did an interview the other day with the people at Glenn Beck, the Blaze Media, and they asked me what I think was the future of Christianity in America. And I said, it all depends on what form of Christianity you're talking about. Talking about cultural Christianity, it's dead and gone a Judeo-Christian morality. If you're talking about institutional, organized Christianity, it's dead. It's dead. Main non-denominations have gone liberal. Organizational Christianity is a mixed bag of true believers and false believers. It's on life support. 
But if you're talking about the true Christians, they're doing fine because the Lord will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But what will happen is the persecution will continue to increase. Why? Jesus said, you hate me because I condemn your sins. A few weeks ago, I, I made a... Well, actually, in that interview, I made a statement that cultural Christianity and institutional Christianity is the church of Satan. Wow, there were headlines everywhere, all over the Internet. I don't know if you've seen that. It's been repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and tweeted. And pastor says institutional Christianity is the church of Satan. What kind of an idiot am I? So then you read the 5,000 responses on the Internet just full of anger and hostility and stuff that they have to keep deleting. Then I did another interview and they asked me, what, what do you do if you have a child who can, professes to be a Christian who then tells you he's a homosexual or she's a homosexual? What do you do? And I just did what, what the Bible says, um, confront them, call them to repentance. If they don't repent, put them out, turn them over to Satan. Headline. Pastor says, if you have a gay son, turn him over to Satan. And then it all lights up again in these blasts and this fury. A few years ago, you know, at Grace Church, the elders bought me a bulletproof vest that's hanging in my closet. Because they were saying, somebody's going to shoot you. So I haven't worn it. I wouldn't wear it. I refused to wear it. So they put lead in the pulpit. Like, you can't see it, but it's in there. So they said, if anybody shoots, duck. And I'm not worried about that. But, like, I understand the persecution is going to come. So what's my attitude? What's my attitude toward uh, an, an irresponsible, immoral leadership in the country politically, president, Congress, whatever? What's my attitude toward people who lead young people astray at universities where they tell them lies and, and pump out their filth and their anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Scripture uh, stuff, muck? What is my attitude toward them? I hate all of the lies, and I hate the system and the complex that, that manufactures it all. But I have to love the people, and I have to pray for their forgiveness. Pray for their salvation. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who um, was taken by the Nazis and put in a concentration camp and he was moved from camp to camp to camp to camp to camp to camp so nobody could find him because he was a powerful influence in Germany, uh, an underground influence against the Nazi movement. He was a pastor, a Lutheran pastor. And they kept moving around till, new, till no one knew where he was at all, from one place to another, to another, to another, to another, to another. He, he, was, he was brutally treated because of his Christian faith. He ended up being executed. This is a quote from Bonhoeffer, executed by the Nazis. He said this, Through prayer, I go to my persecutor and stand by his side and plead to God for him. Through prayer, I go to my persecutor, stand by his side and plead to God for him. Pray for your persecutors. So love your enemies. 
Pray for your persecutors. And then thirdly, honor your father. Honor your father. Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. What is the connection? Because he loves his enemies. He causes the sun to rise on the evil as well as the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you just love those who love you, so what reward do you have for that? Even tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anybody else does? Even the pagans do that. If you're just loving the people that you define as neighbors, your little group, there's no reward for that. That does not fulfill the command. Honor your father by loving the way your father loves. And he loves his enemies. He loves sinners, a world of sinners. He loves them. How do you know he loves them? Because he provides temporal blessing and abundance and richness and happiness and prosperity and peace and health because he shows compassion to them. He built into the human mechanism defenses against illness and disease. And he has shed tears through the eyes of the prophets in the Old Testament like Jeremiah and through the eyes of his incarnate son who cried tears over the lost. Another way he demonstrates his love is by warning people. Constant warning coming through Scripture. And a fourth way that he loves the world is by offering the gospel. He said to his church in the Great Commission, go into the whole world, preach the gospel to every creature. That's his enemies. That's his enemies. How does he love them? By showing them kindness, common grace, beauty of the world, just kindness. Then by showing them compassion, pity, grief, sadness when they're sad, care. How else does he love them? By warning them of judgment. How else does he love them? By offering them the solution and the escape from judgment, the gospel. So love like your father loves. He loves his enemies. How are you to love your enemies? By doing good to them. Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith, but do good to everyone. They may persecute you. They may hate you. Do good to them. Do good to those that despitefully use you, that persecute you, that abuse you. Do good to them. And as the Old Testament says, you heap coals of fire on their head, which means you, may, you embarrass them, you shame them for their hatred. Show them compassion. Show them pity. Have a broken heart over their plight, the, the sorrows of their life enter into. Don't rejoice when they suffer. And warn them 
Warn them like Luke. Tell them they're going to die. I remember when I went on Larry King after 9-11. He said, what, what is the lesson of uh, 9-11 and the Twin Towers coming down in New York? Say, what's the lesson? I said, the lesson is real simple. You're going to die, and you don't know when. That's the lesson. You're not in charge of your death. That's the lesson. And, and I took that out of Luke 13. You know, they said to Jesus, there were some guys worshiping, some Galileans worshiping in the temple, and Pilate's men came in and sliced them and diced them and, and executed them there. Why did that happen? And Jesus said, you better repent because you're going to die. And then they said there was a tower near Siloam, and it fell, and it killed a bunch of people. Why did that happen? And Jesus said, you better repent. You're going to die. To love our enemies the way God loves our enemies means to show them goodness and kindness, to show them compassion and tenderness and sympathy in their suffering, to warn them, and then most importantly, to preach the gospel to every creature. You never love an enemy more than when you unfold the gospel to that enemy. So back to verse 45. When you love like that, you will be manifestly the sons of your Father who is in heaven. His love is so massive that He gave His only begotten Son, right? Greater love has no man than this, that He does what? Lay down His life for His friends, His neighbors. Love one another. John 15, 14, Jesus said, as I have loved you. Did Jesus love you when you were an enemy? Did he? What does Romans tell us? Romans 5. That while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. What an amazing challenge we have in the world in which we live to hate the system but love the people. And the more you hate the system and the more you love the people, the more God-like you are. In fact, let me say it another way. You are never more like God than when you genuinely love your enemies. And that's why the final cap on this is verse 48. In this context, therefore, we are to be perfect. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That would mean perfect love, perfect hate. That's the standard. Be like God. Be like God. High standard, isn't it? Couldn't be any higher. Be marked by perfect love for God, perfect love for others, Believers and non-believers, perfect hatred of the world. Where we started this morning, we end tonight. God loves perfectly, so He hates perfectly. And the more you love perfectly the way God loves, and the more you hate perfectly the way God hates, the more you're becoming like your Father and manifesting that you are truly His Son. Somebody ought to be able to say, how, how, how do I know that person's a Christian? Because that person hates what God hates and loves what God loves. 
because that person hates sin. That, that person loves righteousness because that person hates the world and loves the kingdom. Your love really demonstrates, and your hate, that you're Christ's. There are doctrinal tests of a true Christian believing the right thing about sin and Christ. There are moral tests, obedience, love, and hatred of the world. Look at your own heart. Look at your own heart. Is that you? Are you pursuing God-likeness? Do you really desire to love the way God loves and to love what God loves and to hate the way God hates and hate what God hates? And then you will live in that tension of hating the system but loving the people in whom all of that is embedded and loving them so manifestly that it becomes clear to everyone that you are a son of your Father. You resemble your Father. Let's pray. Lord, we do desire that we would be godly, godlike. We fall terribly short. But this is not a call for us to be perfect. It is a call for us to press toward the mark, to pursue that perfection that is impossible in this life, unattainable in this life in its absolute sense. But at the same time, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the Word, you can make us more like yourself, more like your Son. For sure, we would want people who know us to say, He's a son of the Father. She's a son of the Father. It's manifest in what he or she loves and what he or she hates. That would bring honor to you. May that be true in our lives. We pray in Christ's name.